rather interesting. We have, but I will hope continually and will yet praise thee more and more. And uh, so that verse actually looks at the theme from last year. It looks at the theme from this year, but we're not going to do that. But I did th think about uh, maybe uh, just having that look back and look ahead. That would have been like great, but the Lord didn't direct that way. So you're going to go back to Romans chapter 5. Would you do that? Romans chapter 5. And we won't take a long time. We really, well, I'm going to strive to do my best not to take a long time. <laughs> you know, there's always, there's always laughter, not, not just on my part. When I say something like that, I don't understand. But uh, Romans chapter 5, and you say, back here again, and, and the answer is yes. Quite frankly, um, the five much mores of Romans 5, there we go, are... Um, have been so, uh, so intensely challenging to me. Um, there's some real deep teaching here. Um, in fact, uh, teaching that, quite frankly, uh, you could probably, without a doubt, take months to just really grasp and glean the, the wonderful truth that we tried to in just 40 minutes kind of give you an overview. But I'd like to dig a little bit because as I was thinking about this evening and the Lord's Supper, um, I was reminded as I studied this chapter over and over that, um, that God has been so good to us and he's been so gracious and he's done so many wonderful things. And I'd like to look a little bit more at the much mores. Because we really didn't do that. We kind of just gave you an overview this morning. So if you allow me to do that, uh, and I'll just, I, I'm going to try to uh, make it briefer than I have in my notes because there's just so much I'd like to say. But um, I, I know we've dealt with some of it this morning, but we'll try to be very brief and take a look once again at the five much more, starting in verse 9, which says, Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. And we'll pick up there in just a moment. Let's pray. Father, please open our hearts, our minds, our eyes to your truth and your word tonight and help us to uh, be encouraged and as well challenged as we think about all you've done for us. And uh, as we come to, to a new year, help us to look back and think about the cross and then as we move forward into the new year, may we make each day count until you come again to live for your glory, knowing that you have been so good to us and so gracious, and you provided so many things that we could never earn or win or deserve. And so we are thankful for the opportunity once again to look at this passage. We're thankful for what you've done and pray that our time uh, now as we uh, close the service tonight would, would be just a real help and a blessing uh, to our lives. And we'll thank you for it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, did I ever tell you the story about how Smith and Jones were reconciled? Probably did, but the story goes this way. Mr. Smith and Mr. Jones were on the outs or at odds over a very trivial matter. And it led to strife, not just strife between the two men, but really strife in the church. In fact, it got so bad that in every vote taken, the two men stood on opposing sides, even if they agreed with one another, just because, well, they didn't like one another. This deeply concerned Deacon Brown at their church, so he began to pray. 
And he asked that God might help him to be a peacemaker. And so he went and he visited uh, Brother Smith. And he said, what do you think of Jones? And Smith said, he's the meanest crank in the neighborhood. But, said the deacon, you have to admit, he's very kind to his family. And Smith at least admitted, he said, oh, sure, he's kind to his family, all right. No one can deny that. Well, the next day, uh, deacon, the deacon went to Mr. Jones' house and inquired. He said, do you know what Smith said about you? No, but I can imagine how that bum would, would speak about me. Well, this may surprise you, the deacon said, but he said, he said, you're very kind to your family. What? Did Smith really say that? Yes, he did. Well, if you hadn't told me, I wouldn't believe it. What do you think of Smith? Asked Deacon Brown. Well, truthfully, I think he's a low-down, good-for-nothing scallywag. But you have to admit, he's very honest in business, the deacon said. Well, there's no getting around that. In business, he's a man you can trust. Well, the next day, Brother Brown called on uh, Brother Smith again. You know what Jones said about you? He claims you're a fellow that can be trusted in business and that you're, you're extremely honest. You mean that? Yes, I do, said Deacon Brown. Well, of all things, replied Brother Smith with a happy smile. The next Sunday, the former enemies actually nodded at each other. And Brown continued his meddling until the next business meeting of the church when Smith and Jones, for the first time for a, in a long time, shook hands and finally voted on the same side. You know, it's always wonderful when you hear of how two people have, uh, have reconciled, especially when their strife has impact on those around them, and it does, by the way. But there's something far more wonderful than two people being reconciled with one another. It's when a, a dirty, rotten sinner that we learned about this morning, which happens to be me and you and everyone in this room, uh, is reconciled with God. Where we were his enemy, where we were on it's the outs with God, if you would, and God, because of the work of Jesus Christ, makes us part of his family. And Romans 5 deals with that very thing. And we spent time, I know, this morning dealing with and looking at the much mores of Romans 5. But these much mores really are great lessons before we participate in the Lord's Supper. So let me just share with you, and let, I'm going to give you the five real quickly. And again, I'm, I'm going to, we're just going to cut out some of the stuff that I have. But uh, first thing I saw, verse 9, is from sentenced to saved. Think about this. The first is a comparison, the first much more is from a sinner under wrath to a saint who is saved. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Now, as we mentioned this morning, our sin puts us under the wrath of Almighty God. But Jesus took care of that. In fact, here are his words in John chapter 5 and verse 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. The death sentence you and I had has been removed. But the question he's actually dealing with in verse 9 is, how can we believe this to be true? You see, we haven't experienced heaven. None of you have experienced heaven. You haven't, okay? None of you have been there. 
All right. Uh, all right. We're not going to talk about some dream he had or anything else. All right. Some some near death experience or whatever uh, that these people can. You have not been there and back. So how can we believe it's true? We haven't experienced heaven and been spared from hell. The first much more deals with that nagging question. And that's why it's so beautiful to me as we come to verse 9. How can a believer rest assured they will not face the wrath of God? We're sinners. So how can we be sure of that? Well, in our text in verse 9, we, are, we, we find what he says, much more than, what much more than? Being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. All right, so how do we know it? Well, the much more is all about that. It's kind of interesting, but he deals with the past, the present, and the future in verses 8 and 9. Uh, look, if you would, in verse 8, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What is that dealing with? That's dealing with our, our past, what we were. At the time when we got saved, we were sinners, but God forgave us. God saved us. And then he says in verse 9, much more than being now justified by his blood. So here's what God did, a wonderful work, is God now has us justified by his blood. Before we were yet sinners, now we're justified by his blood. And on that basis... We can expect, if God did that already for us, that God will complete the work. And that is the much more of verse 9. It's this, look, if, if God did this, when I was a sinner, then God took me from that place and put me here right now, then I can be assured that I have a home in heaven someday that will not be taken away and that I will be saved from the wrath of God. So the comparison is really clear. A sinner under wrath to a saint who is saved and on his way to heaven, someone under the wrath of Almighty God, and someone now who won't ever face, face wrath. There's no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. So he's after saying we were sinners and God died for us, he says we are justified right now, and if God would die for us when we were sinners, and God right now declares us just, then we have great reason to believe that he can and will save us from wrath to come. Isn't that great to know? So the assumption based on what God did when we were sinners and what God declares us to be right now, is, and it's what God says that we shall be saved from wrath. We can count on that fact. It's not just a pipe dream. It's a belief that is rock solid upon the fact that already, God has already done something and much more than we can readily count on what God has said. Second thing. From enemies to friends, verse 10. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Do you realize that he's actually arguing the same thing? He said, look, you're not going to face wrath. You don't have to worry about wrath. Why? Because you were a sinner, but now you're justified. And because of that, much more now we can expect that we'll be saved from wrath. But verse 10 deals with the, the, if you would, the positive side. We don't have to worry about wrath. Don't have to worry about hell. But now we know that we'll be saved and be part of and be in heaven someday. So the comparison, when I got saved, my relationship with God was, was made different. Not by my deeds, but by the death of his son. It took his punishment for me to be reconciled. Uh, someone explained it this way. We're brought into an agreement to a state of friendship and union with God 
we became his friend. Laid aside our opposition. We embrace him as now as a friend and our portion. Uh, to effect this is the great design of the plan of salvation. You know, there were obstacles, they wrote, existing on both sides to a reconciliation. And these were removed by the death of Jesus Christ. And a union has now been effected. And so the conclusion of that is this. Much more takes this drastic change. Enemy to a friend of God. Now look, if God would do that work, why would we ever question that a risen, all-powerful Lord will save us from future judgment and give us a home in heaven? That's the much more. So I can count on that. Verse 15, third, third one. From guilty to gifted. Uh, notice what he says, but not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one, many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. Now, the comparison here is interesting. Oh, wow, by the way, this is really a deep passage. It's called the parenthesis. Those who have studied it out spend a whole heap of time writing about Romans chapter 5 and this Parenthesis that brings a lot of debate and question about, oh man, I'll tell you all sorts of things. And we are not going to get into that debate, not only because we don't have time, but we're not going to get into that debate because, quite frankly, I think it's a waste of time, although I know many would really not agree with that assessment. The truth here is worth pondering without getting into arguments about semantics and the deep meaning of the passage. Here's what it is, our comparison of Adam versus Christ. And the simple truth is that the much more of verse 15 deals with the consequences of Adam's deed and the consequences of Jesus' deed. And the point is, much more, there's no comparison. There is, but there isn't. So I'll try to explain it very simply. Adam's deed brought death. Now, you would say, well, that's a great consequence. Could you imagine if Adam hadn't sinned and he would still be around today? That would be pretty wild, wouldn't it? Yeah, it, it would. Uh, death passed, though, upon all men. You say, that's a great consequence, but here's the truth. It's nothing in comparison to what Jesus brought by his death on the cross. You see, he didn't just bring freedom from condemnation. He brings so much more with this free gift. Okay, the fall brought death. You got that? Verse 15. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. If, for if through the offense of one, many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. All right, so physical and eternal death are consequences that have passed on many because of the sin of Adam. Unless saved, all men will spend eternity in hell because we are born sinners. Do you realize this? And I, some people don't grasp it. We kind of talk to people that are unsaved. We say, have you ever sinned? And we try to convince them of that. Here's the truth. If they never sinned their entire life, they still go to hell. Well, I can't understand that. Well, that was God's decree. God said death would pass on men if Adam partook of the tree, and he did. And death passed upon all men. So all men now are, are headed for... You get old and die, 
because of Adam. Don't like Adam. We do. We age. Body falls apart. Used to be able to do things. Can't do them anymore. And that all happened because of, of one man's sin. You say, wow, wow, that's a pretty big thing. Um, verse 16 talks about condemnation as a consequence of, of his sin. Um, in fact, in verse 16, he says, And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one the condemnation. And the word condemnation is a, 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 dam, a, a, a condemning verdict. It's like kind of like a courtroom. You're a defendant, you've been charged with a crime, but the crime was committed by someone else. But you're guilty by association. You're guilty by birth. And you may have prepared a wonderful defense of your innocence. I haven't done anything wrong, but when the door opens and the judge comes out of his chambers, it's God. And there is no jury. There's no one else to hear the case because God already knows everything about you. But even if God didn't have any list of sins that you've committed, God would still in the courtroom say, I don't need to hear any evidence. I won't hear any evidence. You're guilty. And he would be right. He would be right. That sentence condemns us and sentence is passed. The verdict is passed. You're condemned. And in verse 17, it says, by one man's offense, death reigned by one. Uh, people who are looking for the fountain of life, that elixir that will end aging, it doesn't work. It won't work. It never will. All men die physically. All men die spiritually and are sentenced to a life in eternal judgment. Um, the free gift, though, brings much more than life. Paul uses the words much more to reveal that this comparison is weak. Why? Because the sin of one man brought terrible result on man, but this free gift is so much more than one thing. It doesn't just save us from death and hell. All right, so look, one man sin sends us and sentences us to physical death and spiritual death, sentence separated from God for all eternity. One man's sacrifice, Jesus Christ, much more. His sacrifice is so much more than just what Adam did. That's the picture of verse 15. He's done so much more because not only, not only does it save us from that judgment that we face, not only does it save us ultimately from, well, by the way, it might even save us from, from death because he's coming again, okay? But that eternal death that's talked about in separation from God just won't ever happen. The free gift brought that, but it brought so many other things. So the father's ready to declare us guilty because of Adam's sin, and Christ stands and he defends us, saying, my blood's been applied to their account. And the father is ready to render a verdict guilty, and then he says, you're absolutely innocent of any wrong at all. Now get this. It's, it's one thing for God to say, okay, I'll give you heaven, but it's another thing for God to say, I'm taking care of every sin. And we brought it out this morning, but every sin, past, present, and future. Think of this. If you would... How many would, would admit that we probably sin at least once a, once a day? Okay? All right? That, that, I mean, that's not, even, that's not even close. All right? But let's just say we sin once a day. So if we started at age 2 and we get to age 12, how many sins have we committed? 
Yeah, <laughs> 3,650, and someone's going to be smart and say, what about all the leap years? Yeah, thanks a lot. All right, forget the leap years. We're going to say you were perfect two days or three days or whatever happens in that 10 years. Okay, so 3,650. Someone do math now. Help me out real quickly because I have it all written down, but I'm down here. You're now 22 years of age. How many sins? Seven, <laughs> twice that. <laughs> 7,300? Okay. You're uh, 32 now. And how many, how many is it? Oh, I do have it right in front of me. You're 32. It's 10,950. 42. 14,600. 52. 18,250. 62. 21,900. That's just one sin a day. The blood of Jesus Christ not only took care of what Adam did that brought death, but the blood of Jesus Christ, this gift, took care of every one of those sins in addition. So think, in your lifetime, how many sins you have committed and how many sins get this, you will commit the rest of your life and the blood of Jesus Christ took care of all of them. So this is the much more. Not just Adam's guilt, but all the other guilt that you've done because you've actually sinned. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that amazing? To think that God would do that. Verse 17, from being ruled to ruling. I said we were going to... I'm cutting the notes back. I'm trying really seriously. Being ruled to ruling, verse 17. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, death reigned, it rules us. It does. You can't avoid it. Um, Much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Here's the picture, Okay. Some might say verse 17 and 15 are dealing with the same thing. Okay, that's fine. The much more is not much different if you want to accept that. But does verse 17 gives us an interesting concept. In fact, there's really a lot of play on words in Romans chapter 5. I encourage you to go through and, and look at it. It's interesting because he said in verse 17, one man's offense caused death and death rules over us. By one man's sin, death rules over us so that the moment we're born, we have that sentence of death upon us. You get that idea? It rules over us. What Jesus did is make us rulers. So no longer does death have control over me, but someday I'm going to reign and rule with him. Isn't that that great? So death ruled over me and it doesn't anymore. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? There, There is no sting. There is no victory anymore. Because Jesus uh, called us to rule and reign with him. Uh, And then verse 20, from abounding sin to abounding grace. And we pictured it this morning, but I I really love love that, that picture. Look at verse 20 again. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Do you realize that when God gave the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, it was not so we'd have rules to live by so we could say, ooh, look at how good I am. Do you know the reason it was given? 
so that we would see how bad a sinner we really are. Before the law was given, this was finally a written code of conduct, conduct the first written code of conduct that was given. It was Exodus chapter 20 by God. Everything else had been by word of mouth. And by the way, they knew right and wrong because God held um, Cain and Abel. God held Cain accountable and Abel for, his, for their deeds. He rewarded one, he judged the other. Why? Because they knew the law. They knew God's law. But man got so bad that God destroyed the whole earth except one family. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And then we continue on and we get back to all sorts of sins and wickedness that were done by God's people, or by, sorry, by lost people who just had no regard for God and were going their own way and doing the things that were wrong and sinful. And so God then writes this law. And this law all of a sudden says, guilty! Sins are building up! Because I don't measure up. The law keeps saying, you don't measure up, you don't measure up, you don't measure up. And God says, you don't. And what's so amazing about this is here I am, and I've got this big, huge burden of sin that I am carrying. And, and God, by grace, his supernatural enabling, does for me something I could never do for myself. He just lifts that. Boom, it's gone. Through the blood of Christ. So what we're, what we're reminded of, Romans 5, is a beautiful picture of what, what we're partaking, what Jesus did. So let's just, uh, let's just rejoice in that. And tonight is, as we come and we partake of these elements, um, remember what you took so that these things could happen for you and to you. I mean, five much mores in Romans 5, besides many other teachings, but they are really wonderful. Wonderful.